We come to Second Timothy once again this morning. Our scripture reading is going to be in chapter 2, verses 8 to 21. And as we begin to read, uh, let us remind ourselves that even in the listening of the word, we need the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate our hearts and our minds, to receive the word, to understand it, and to treasure it within our hearts. Paul writes to Timothy these words. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we would ask during this time that our hearing of your word would be with attentive ears. We would desire, Almighty God, that we would be fed spiritually. We need it. Uh, we would desire to be guided uh, because we uh, are in a world that is so very, very confusing. Uh, discerning the way of truth is impossible apart from your spirit and your word leading and guiding us. Uh, we would pray for our conduct among those who aren't Christians, that it would always be in conformity to not the ways of the world, but the ways of Christ. Uh, we would ask that we would never forget our purpose, the purpose of the church, uh, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that each one of us would see ourselves as ambassadors for the truth, ambassadors for Jesus. That we would know that all those who are on the side of Jesus will listen to him, that his sheep hear his voice. So we pray we would not get discouraged by what's going on in the world. Rather, we would see that you've called us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And to know that you, Lord Jesus, have ordained for us. Uh, to live our lives in such a way that our good works would manifest a powerful witness and testimony to you. 
so that even the pagans, even those who don't know you, might glorify you because they see in us the very character of Christ. We pray for this. None of this is possible. We can't generate this in and of ourselves. It only comes by your Holy Spirit working in us to will and to do your good pleasure as we are guided and directed by Scripture. This is what we would pray for this morning. Continue to renew our minds so we can test and approve what your will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You know, during my college years, a, a secular friend of mine, uh, one who did not profess to be a Christian, said something to me that I thought was rather profound. He said, if you have no principles you would die for, then you will have no convictions to live by. Yeah, that statement impressed me because it seemed to make immediate sense to me as a Christian. A few years earlier in my personal life, my personal concern, in fact, it was the spring of 1969. Uh, my personal concern was that my life, whether I lived it long or whether I lived it short, would actually mean nothing to cosmic history. That is to say, I had come to Carl Sagan's conclusion some 16 years before that TV series was ever broadcast. Uh, you know, the cosmos is all there is, all there ever has been, and all there ever will be. Uh, Sagan's famous statement. Uh, as a 16-year-old going on 17 atheist, I also came to a second conclusion, uh, one that Sagan never expresses to his audience at all, that whether we are good or bad, heroes or villains, caring for others or only caring for ourselves, it doesn't matter. Because if there is no God, the cosmos doesn't give you a moral standard to live by. And the cosmos doesn't bless you if you do good. And the cosmos doesn't curse you if you do bad. Because the cosmos doesn't draw any distinction between good and evil. The cosmos doesn't care. And therefore, there are no moral principles to live by. And consequently, there are no moral convictions worth dying for. But everything changed for me in the next year and a half. So that when I set foot on college, my freshman year, the college campus, I was firmly committed to Christ, firmly committed to following him. And now I had principles I would die for. And therefore, I had convictions that I would live by. Young people listen very carefully. It doesn't really matter at all what career or careers you may have in your life. What really matters right now is that you find in Christ everything worthy to live for, everything worthy to die for. So don't live for your career, and don't live for your husband, and don't live for your wife, and don't live for your children until you have first settled this issue. That you will find in Christ everything worthy to live for and to die for. And likewise, for us older people, are you afraid to see death coming? Why? Isn't Paul's testimony convincing? When Paul says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain? 
Hasn't the goodness of Christ in your life been that perfect down payment of the glory that shall be yours upon your entrance into glory? Do you not yet see that your citizenship is in heaven and that when we die, we are going home? All of these thoughts pertain to Paul's message to Timothy as we're looking at it this morning. Paul is in prison, and this is for the last time. Uh, Nero Caesar is not going to release Paul this time. Paul's departure from this life is certain. And Paul deeply wants Timothy to come to him soon, even before the winter season begins. And he wants Timothy to bring his cloak and his books and his parchments above all. But these are the things that Paul mentions at the end of his letter. His current burden in this message to Timothy is to prepare Timothy to live and to serve without fear by preparing Timothy to die. Paul seeks to galvanize Timothy to faithful living, faithful service in the face of the certainty of death with those convictions that are worth dying for because of Christ. But because also beyond the certainty of death is the greater certainty of death's outcome for all of those who are faithful followers of Christ, there's true life and true immortality. So whether by the imminent persecution that's coming under Nero or any other way that death might possibly come, Paul wants Timothy prepared to die because in the light of that death is the proper way for us to know how to actually live. And, and truly and really, this is the wonderful burden of the gospel. The certainty of death's outcome for Christians should galvanize our efforts to live for nothing less than the glory of Christ. I'm going to say that again. The certainty of death's outcome for the Christian should galvanize him, all of his efforts, to live for nothing less than the glory of Christ. Because we have one earthly life, one earthly life only to spend. And let us spend it best by living for Christ. Let us learn to live and to serve Christ by preparing to die. And we find in these verses Paul's reasons and motivations and instructions to Timothy on how to do so. How to take our earthly life, this one life we have to live, and to spend it best by living for Christ. And that's what I mean in terms of preparing to die. That is, take this one life and spend it best by spending it and living for Christ. Now, in verses 8 to 10, the apostle gives to Timothy the reasons for doing so. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, in these verses, we have three very powerful reasons for living for Christ that Paul is declaring to Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ, and then he declares two reasons. 
we have a death-conquering seed of David, prophecy-fulfilling Messiah who brought life and immortality to light. We have, on the one hand, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then we have, on the other hand, the historical reality that this Jesus fulfilled many, many Old Testament prophecies about the seed of the woman and about the seed of David, who would be the Messiah and the Savior of the world. These are the reasons Christ is worthy to be served, even in the face of death, because he has conquered death for us. And he's truly he is truly the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. But then also note that Paul refers to the gospel as my gospel. And that's a significant statement to Timothy. He's reminding Timothy, remember this, remember my own testimony. Because Paul has always claimed that the gospel that he's preached, uh, the only gospel that he's ever preached, has been the gospel that he got directly from Jesus Christ himself. So, as Paul has testified, if there is no resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then there is in Christ or in Jesus no fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies. Jesus is not really then the promised seed of David. And then Paul would have no gospel message at all. Uh, and that also means that Paul would never have been converted. And Paul would certainly not be right then suffering as a prisoner in Rome in chains for the sake of Christ, in chains as a criminal facing execution. Paul would not be enduring any of all of these things for the sake of the elect. But he is. And his reasons for doing so is the truth that Jesus conquered death. And Jesus is the promised seed of David. And the certainty of the salvation that we have in Christ promised to all the elect is that the outcome of earthly death is eternal glory. And Paul, in essence, is saying to Timothy, the certainty of these things, the certainty of what is to come after death, Timothy, this must galvanize you. This must energize all of your efforts to live for and to serve Christ and for all of his glory. And then Timothy says, and Paul says to Timothy, I am bound, but not the gospel. I will die, but not the gospel witness. We don't serve any hopeless cause. We serve Christ, who will bring to pass everything that he has promised. Now, what Paul says to Timothy, no less applies to us. We have the same certainties about what happens after death that Timothy had. We have the same certainties that whatever we go through in this life for the sake of Christ, what happens after death is eternal glory. And that should galvanize us to live for nothing less than for the glory of Christ. And then in verses 11 to 13, Paul is going to speak to the motivations to live for Christ in terms of gospel guarantees and a very serious gospel warning. He writes these words, the saying is trustworthy for if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, 
he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, if you look at several of the uh, uh, modern translations that we're familiar with, you know, the ESV here, but also the New American Standard and, and then the, the New International Version, they're all printed to show these verses in their poetic form. And, and therefore, scholars have said that uh, either this is a part of a Christian hymn, or at the very least, it's an early Christian poem, because it's written as a set of four uh, parallelisms, four parallel uh, conditionals that have the beginning statement and the concluding statement. But it's the content itself of these statements that really contains the motivation. Because in these lines, we have those gospel guarantees and this very serious gospel warning. So first of all, there are two guarantees that we find in this trustworthy statement. The first is this. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now, there's something to notice here about the use of the word if as it occurs in the Greek. Now, we know that in English, we have at least two different ways to use the word if. Uh, the first that often occurs to us is the iffy if. That is to say, we use the word if in such a way that it might possibly not be the case. Uh, back during the summer of 2014, uh, Julie said to me, you know, I would like to I'd like for you to grow a beard if you can, meaning I'm not really sure that you are able to do this. Uh, might be, might not be. Well, that was the iffy use of the word if. But there is another usage of the word if in the Greek, which actually introduces not a state of possibility. It might or it might not, but actually a statement of fact. And if Julie had said something like this to me, I would like you to grow a beard since you can. That would have captured that particular use of the word if as we find it in this passage. Or if we said something like this, if it is Wednesday and it is, then we will have prayer meeting. That's the actual use of if that begins every one of these four conditionals. It's not speaking about a possibility. It's not iffy, but it's actually uh, addressing itself to a statement of actuality and fact. So, verse 11 can be translated this way. If we have died with Christ, and we most certainly have, then we will also live with him. And it's actually okay to translate this as since. Since we have died with Christ, we shall also live with him. That's the gospel guarantee. We have died with Christ. Uh, we know this because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We know this because we have believed the word. We know this because we trusted in Christ for our salvation everlastingly. And we believe Christ is able to do everything that we trust him for. So we have died with Christ because we know that Jesus was our substitute upon the cross. He was the one who was our representative. Uh, we know from scripture that we were united to Christ in a covenantal union before the foundations of the world even. Paul had already said that to Timothy back in the first chapter when he said to Timothy that that, that purpose of salvation and that grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And so when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. And that means we will also live with him. That is the gospel guarantee, eternal life a resurrected eternal life 
that will be like that of Jesus Christ himself. And that conviction fortifies us in the face of death. Since I've died with Christ, no matter what happens to me in this life, I will live again with Christ. And that's the message of Paul to Timothy. And that's the message of the gospel to you. If you have if you have died with Christ, if you know that you've died with Christ, if you're absolutely certain you have died with Christ, then you have that gospel assurance. If you've died with Christ, you will also live with him. Now, the second guarantee is the first line of verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Once again, the proper understanding is this. If we endure with Christ, and this is actually the case, we are enduring with Christ, then we will also reign with Christ in the glory of eternity. Uh, the grace that is preached in Scripture, the grace of the gospel, is exactly what Jesus has said in a different way in John chapter 10, when he basically talks about the sheep hearing his voice, they know him, they follow him. He gives them everlasting life. And then he goes on to say, and no one can snatch them out of my hands. Christ holds us, and he holds us fast. If we truly belong to him, Christ holds us and holds us fast. No one can snatch us out of the out of the hands of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says further, my father, who is greater than all, my father, who is greater than all, holds his sheep in his hands. Both the father and the son hold us securely. That's why we endure. And if we endure with him, then we will also reign with him. Now, the next part. Uh, begins in the second half of verse 12 and then verse 13. This is the gospel warning that we find in this trustworthy statement. And it's part of the motivation. Uh, what's important to be sung, possibly, is this trustworthy saying. Timothy describes, in First and Second Timothy, Paul describes to Timothy, what Timothy already knew, that there are people who have made their professions of faith who look like for a season that they actually believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. And yet, you know, part of the, the message of First Timothy is that they actually fall away from the faith and they deny Christ, often by their lips, but certainly by their lips and their lives. They become those who have fallen away. They have swerved from the truth. These are those who never repent and return to Christ. They become Christ deniers actual denial of Christ in their lives. Now, Jesus warned about this. So we can say that this trustworthy statement is grounded not in some, you know, first century Christian songwriter thinking something up. It's actually grounded in the teachings of Christ. So if you were to turn to Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 34 to 38, we have Jesus calling the crowds to himself along with his disciples. And then he says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall gain it, shall save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This trustworthy statement that Paul was quoting here makes this point. It is a statement of fact that if you deny Christ, if you are ashamed of him in this adulterous and sinful generation, then it is a statement of fact that Christ will deny you. He will be ashamed of you on this day of his return. Now, Jesus intended these words to be a severe warning, but he intended these words to be a highly motivational warning that the disciples in the crowd on that day and that all of us through the history of the church would see the gospel message in terms of life or death as matters of eternal life and eternal death and therefore living for Christ, serving Christ is worth even dying for Christ. Now we're reminded by what the trustworthy statement is. We are reminded by the words of Jesus directly. There is no such thing in the Christian faith, the true Christian faith, that can be called carnal security. There is no such thing as a person being saved in the condition of denying Christ. The denying of Christ rather shows that we have never truly been born again in the first place. The denial of Christ demonstrates we have never been saved at all. How important this is to motivate us to make a calling and election sure. How important this is to motivate us to say, I have one primary purpose in life. If I name the name of Christ and I believe in, 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 in the, what happens after Christ, after death comes, if I believe in the glories that are to follow, if I believe in everlasting life, if I believe that that is what Christ has done, conquered death to give to his people everlasting life, then, then there's, there's no playing around with this. There, there is one great purpose in life. If I'm prepared to die for the sake of Christ, then live for Christ. Live fully for Christ. Live in every way for Christ. Make that my first principle of life. To live for the glory of Christ. And that's Paul's great burden to Timothy. Timothy, I want you fully prepared to die. And you'll demonstrate that you're fully prepared to die by living fully for Christ. And then really Paul's final exhortation to Timothy in this section is really the instructions on how to do this. Timothy, I want to tell you how to live so that you can live your life properly for Christ in the face of death. And the essential message is this. Timothy, keep on doing the faithful work of a faithful shepherd. Seek to be productive in your calling. That is, since you know the certainty of what's going to happen to you after death, you don't need to worry and you don't need to focus on when death will come or how it's going to come. You don't even need to think about death in those categories. You don't need to fear death in that way. Rather, you have work to do. You can't let death, the persecutions that are coming, take your eyes off the fact that you have work to do and therefore stay faithful to the faithful stewardship of the word of God. And that's really the burden of verses 14 through 19. So the first thing Paul says in verse 14 is this, remind them of these things and 
charged them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. The them very possibly refers back to uh, chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul is basically telling Timothy, uh, that which I've given to you and trust to faithful men who will be able to uh, basically train and teach others as well. Or it could refer to the whole congregation at Ephesus. But in either case, the concern is the same. Remind the brethren not to get entangled with quarrels about words. Don't get involved in these meaningless arguments because all of that is spiritually destructive. Rather, verse 15, Paul goes on to say, Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most important principles for the shepherds of the church. This is what you want to see in those who are pastors and elders and shepherds of the congregation. You, you want to always see that the requirement is always with respect to the calling, the handling of the word of God, the handling of the truth is to do it rightly, to do it accurately, to do it properly. Uh, that every elder, and especially those who are called to be teaching elders, are required by the word of God to handle the word of God the way it's supposed to be handled. To each one to do his best to interpret and to apply God's truth for the people of God. Now that's the backbone of the shepherd's calling to be elders and leaders of the church, to be doctrinally sound and to be able to present and to teach the whole counsel of God. And that's why you don't want ever in the pulpit anyone who's a novice, anyone who's an amateur, or anyone who's a celebrity. Not if we take 2 Timothy 2.15 seriously. It requires men to be well-trained in order that they may properly handle the word of truth. And then verses 16 to 18, we read these words where Paul says to Timothy, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Now, in these words, which sounds so much like what Paul was writing to Timothy about in 1 Timothy, the letter that came a few years earlier, uh, and the reason why it sounds so much the same is because these kinds of problems never really go away. And that's the history of the church over 2,000 years. Uh, people from inside the church, uh, there will be people who rise up, who will swerve away from the truth, and then who will promote that kind of uh, twisted scripture teaching, really doctrines of demons, among the people of God. Uh, and, and especially the people who are not properly anchored in biblical truth, they're going to be seduced, they're going to be carried away. And then Paul uses the illustration, the simile of gangrene, that, that terrible, destructive, wasting kind of disease that happens uh, that shows how corrosive and corrupted bad doctrine is. Timothy is to avoid it all and to teach all Christians to avoid it all. Recognize that, that there's stuff out there that's dangerous to you. 
And that can be like gangrene eating at your soul, pulling you away from the truth. And all of that is fairly uh, discouraging, really. But then we come to verse 19. And so Paul brings that which is a very, very important encouragement. Uh, yes, within the best congregation, there are going to be those who are false wolves trying to arise. Uh, within the best church family, there are going to be those who are going to swerve away from the truth. And within the best church family, there are going to be uh, very vulnerable believers who, uh, because they're not anchored deeply in, in, in God's word, will be easily enticed and pulled away. But Paul gives this encouragement in verse 19 to Timothy. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now that's to be reassuring to Timothy. Trust that God knows those who are his. And trust that God knows how to take care of those who are his. Trust that when Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they know me and they follow me and I give them eternal life, that that promise is true. And then keep teaching this truth, that those who really know Christ, those who really know God must depart from iniquity, from the iniquity of sinful practices, immoral practices, but also the sinfulness of, of the immoral beliefs. Stay away from bad doctrine. Depart from it. Those who are truly Christians will depart from bad doctrine and will depart from bad living. So Timothy has been exhorted then with the reasons for living for Christ and the motivation for living for Christ and then instructions on how to keep living for Christ in view of the certainty of what we have after we have died. That what, what there is for us on the other side of earthly death is the eternal glory. Because in the gospel, Christ has brought life and immortality to light. Now, Paul's conclusion to this section will be our conclusion also this morning, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable, the noble and the ignoble of the New American Standard. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, this vessel application or this vessel illustration has one primary application. It is to encourage us to consecrate our lives for the sake of living for Christ. Because we have the certainty of death's outcome for us as Christians. And therefore, because of that certainty of the outcome of death, we should be galvanized in our efforts to live for Christ, consecrating our lives unto living for Christ, committed to living for nothing less than the glory of Christ. Because here's the truth. We have only this one life to spend in this world. Let us spend it best by living for our Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Amen. And pray with me. Our God and our Father, uh, we would ask that you would fill us with your spirit in such a way that we would see Christ as our end all, that we would see Christ as as the reason that life has purpose and meaning, that we would see what Christ has done for us as the deepest kind of motivation to live in a manner that pleases you in this life, and that we would be faithful uh, to serve you so that we might bear fruit in every good work, and that we might live before this adulterous and sinful and iniquitous generation as salt and light. We would pray for this, Father, because there's really no middle ground. Uh, there's life in you, or there's eternal death. There's faithfully following you, or there are the consequences of finding Christ ashamed on that great day when he comes. Oh, Lord, please, may it be said of us that, that by your grace we are all that you want us to be, that your seal is upon us, Father, that the Lord knows us. We pray for this. We would pray, Lord, that all of us would be those who have heard the shepherd's voice, that we know Jesus, and that we've chosen to follow him.